Thank you, Jason, and it's great to be back. Uh, uh, last week, I spoke to this group about the current state of First Amendment freedoms. We call it, called the talk, you know, what, what happened to the First Amendment? And as Jason mentioned uh, this morning, I'm going to be talking about uh, the Christian and specifically Reformed Protestant backdrop of liberal republicanism or uh, or civil liberty in America. And then the next time I'm going to talk specifically about freedom of religion and the separation between church and state and its connections with Christian doctrine. And then finally, one last segment on you know, how Christians can and should and shouldn't engage in the public square. So that gives you a sense of the, uh, of the subject matter. Um, today is a particular interest of mine, and, and here's my motivation for giving the talk, that I think many of us are brought up, you know, taking high school, U.S. history, or whatever, we're brought up to think that the um, sort of liberal, uh, uh, civil libertarian tradition of America derives from the Enlightenment primarily, and maybe even in opposition to uh, the reactionary forces of the Christian religion. Um, now, intellectual historians know that this is not so, uh, but, and so what I'm going to be talking about is, is no secret. This is no, uh, n nothing that I have you know, uncovered from the shadows, but it certainly isn't talked about very much. And I think it's important for us as Christians to know the real history about this because, uh, in, in fact, uh, it was uh, the most intense religious people, most intense Protestants who were behind, were, were the shock troops of the American Revolution and who were really behind our a liberal Republican uh, founding. By the way, when I use the word Republican, I don't mean anything about the modern Republican Party. There's a small r Republican. That's the term that our founders used for a system of representative self-government with protection for uh, uh, important rights like freedom of speech and freedom of religion. I call it Republicanism because that's the term that's in the Constitution. The Constitution says that one of its purposes is to guarantee a republican form of government. Whenever possible, I like to use the language of the Constitution when talking about law, just as I like to use the language of the Bible when I'm talking about uh, a biblical things. Um, so uh, if you look at uh, European history over the last 500 or 600 years, uh, there was nothing like liberal republicanism for a very long time. Every country in Europe was uh, governed by a monarch. Uh, they could be more oppressive or less oppressive. Some were, you know, some were pretty tolerant and others were not, and they went through different periods of time. Uh, but a liberal republicanism is a new thing under the sun coming about in theory really in the 17th century and then with the United States being the first actual uh, working example uh, of that coming about at the end of the 18th century. 
all of those experiments in liberal republicanism happened to occur in the lands of the Protestant Reformation. Is that a coincidence? Now, I don't think so, but you know who else didn't think so? King George didn't think so either. When King George was asked what the, why was, what was the cause of the American Revolution, which he hated, by the way, he almost abdicated uh, when his government was going to make peace with the Americans. Uh, he was asked, so what's the co- what caused the American Revolution? And his answer was, and I quote, the black regiment. Now, he was not making a racial remark. The black regiment was a reference to the Calvinist clergymen who wore black robes with a little white uh, uh, collar. So what he was really saying was the American Revolution was a product of Reformed Protestantism. Right? Uh, when Edmund Burke, uh, the great English parliamentarian, really rising to the level of philosopher, he was so uh, uh, thoughtful, uh, wrote his Reflections, uh, I'm sorry, when he wrote his, his letter on conciliation with the colonies in the midst of the revolution, he had four, gave four explanations for why uh, the colonies were in a revolt. And one of them was the deep-dyed Protestantism of the, uh, of the colonies. Now, why is this? Um, I'm going to refer to a number of different uh, concepts. Each of them could be a lecture under themselves. So please be aware I am not giving anything its proper due. It's going to be a little bit like, you know, uh, uh, roller skating through the art gallery, right? We're going to go very fast, right? But um, how did we move from a world in the early 16th century, the early 1500s, in which John Calvin, the founder of Reform Protestantism, was really what we would call an authoritarian? I don't, I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. He took very seriously, as we should, but we need to be thoughtful about it, but took very seriously uh, the 13th chapter of Romans, which, as you know, begins by saying, let everyone be subject to the sovereign authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Right, and so at the beginning of my story, that's where Reformed Protestantism stood. That's where Lutheranism stood. That's where Catholicism stood. Basically, religion taught obedience uh, to uh, uh, to the authorities. And yet, by the time of the American Revolution, it's those black-robed clergy who are, in a sense, the ideological uh, commissars of the American Revolutionary Movement. What happened? Um, Now, most of this, I think, has to do with theology, that is, with ideas, but some of it simply has to do with experience. And I'm going to begin with experience. So Calvin is writing at a time of relative peace just before uh, the Thirty Years' War, which is a religious civil war in Germany. Uh, By... And, and then, then some events happened which just shattered this, um, 
worldview. 1572 in France, St. Bartholomew's Day, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, uh, the, the Huguenots, the French Reformed Protestants, who were numerous, there may have been a million of them in France. Um, we think of France as a Catholic country, but France, France had a vibrant uh, uh, reform, Protestant reform movement. Uh, the, uh, there was an orchestrated from-the-top massacre called the St. Bartholomew's Day's Massacre. The leading uh, Protestant uh, civilian, who was an admiral, was murdered. Somewhere between historians still don't know how many people were killed. The lowest estimates are in the tent range of 10 to 20,000 people. Right, that's you know, 3,000 people died at 9-11. So 10 to 20,000 at least, with the upper... Uh, estimates being 100 or maybe even 150,000 Protestants killed essentially overnight, massacres, right? And then many other of the Huguenots, the French Protestants, driven out. So this is a shattering experience to someone who believes that God has instituted the authorities, Right. Note that these people were not rebelling, if you think about again about Romans 13. It isn't that they were rebels, they were victims. Right. But what do, how does the church respond? How do, do they just sit back uh, when they see this happen? So this, is, this event caused uh, Calvin's successors to do some very serious thinking about politics, which they had never really given that much attention to before because they didn't have to. And the second major set of events had to do with Holland, which was another country which had been extremely receptive to to Calvin's teachings, to reform Protestantism. Uh, And Holland was under the rule of Catholic Spain, and there was a a protracted decades-long war of independence on behalf of the Dutch, on the part of the Dutch, against their Spanish oppressors. And this also had a strongly religious tinge to it, right? It wasn't just Dutch people against Spaniards, but it was specifically Dutch Protestants against Catholics. So again, you had an experience in which uh, Protestants were thrown into a struggle which... uh, you know, which they had a hard time uh, assimilating. Next set of experiences that are especially important for our founders are in uh, Britain itself. Now, Queen, uh, when, after Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church and then Queen Elizabeth came along, uh, she established a moderate form of Protestantism. Henry VIII really wasn't true Protestant, what he had, his idea was, let's keep the Catholic Church exactly the same as it is, except we're going to throw out the Pope and plug the king in as the head of the church. But, and and uh, he didn't really want to reform, right? But reform came, and Elizabeth, his daughter, embraced a moderate form of Protestantism. It was called the Middle Way, and this is the ancestor of our modern Episcopalian or Anglican uh, a tradition, and she was a very shrewd, balanced person, so she had Catholics on one side and more extreme Protestants on the other, and they were not exactly tolerated, but they weren't precisely oppressed either. 
and then uh, after she died, uh, she was replaced by uh, the two Stuart, first two Stuart kings, and then Charles II in particular, I'm sorry, Charles I in particular, uh, was a secret convert to Catholicism and very hostile to serious Reformed Protestants who were a strong... This was why... Uh, we, we've all learned the story of Thanksgiving, right? But this is why the pilgrims and the Puritans were off the... The pilgrims were driven out. They fled to, to Leiden and Holland and then from Holland uh, to Plymouth Rock, right? And the Puritans went directly from Britain to... Uh, Massachusetts. Puritans and, and, and pilgrims were both Reformed Protestants, although they had, they had serious uh, theological differences even between uh, uh, themselves. But they fled to this wilderness, right? And so this was a, a serious strategy for how to deal with the problem of religious oppression without being rebels. They weren't fighting Charles I. Right? Instead, they just got out. They went to the ends of the earth, right? Where and, and, and what did they do there? They established self-government, rule by themselves. The Mayflower Compact, on the ship, before they even uh, uh, make a landing, they have a written document in which they all agree that they will form uh, republic, they, the word republican is not in the compact, but basically that's what they're talking about. They will form a self-governing uh, place in which they all will govern themselves uh, for the common good. Right? And for a very long time, uh, Britain, it, they were too far away and too poor and too unimportant for Britain to bother with as long as Britain got the benefit of some profitable trade. Who cares what they're worshiping over in a benighted place like uh, Massachusetts? And so this ideal of self-government uh, begins to become part of the self-image of the Reformed Protestant people of, of North America. Uh, it, things don't cease to be a problem back in in Britain, there is a, a very brief period in which the Reformed Protestants themselves take over under all, Oliver Cromwell. And let me tell you, to my shame and embarrassment, you know, uh, they are just as intolerant as the people that they had displaced. So at this point, they are, there is not a, there's not a, yet a sense that everyone should have a civil liberty. It's a sense that what we need to do is find a way to be able to worship God correctly, right? And so you can do that by going off to Massachusetts, right? And, and let other people, if other people have a different idea of how to worship God, let them go to their own Massachusetts. Let them go somewhere else, right? They, you know, Massachusetts should be, uh, uh, should be a, a Christian commonwealth, a city on the hill, not a haven for... Uh, uh, for civil liberties. When the Stuart kings come back is the most fierce uh, anti-Protestant uh, 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 persecution and a uh, you know, series of laws called the Clarendon Codes are written uh, uh, that, that require al almost everyone to be a member of the, of the Church of England and punished uh, 
open religious activity outside of the Church of England. Um, for five years, in, the, the, the Scottish Protestants, Scotland is much more uh, influenced by the Reformation than England is uh, under John Knox. This is where Presbyterians come from. Presbyterians are the Reformed Protestants from Scotland. Uh, there's a, an uprising uh, and put down, and there's a five-year period that is in Scotland is still called, referred to, in retrospect, as the killing times because of the extreme uh, uh, attacks on uh, the Presbyterians in, uh, uh, in Scotland. And each one of these waves of persecution sends people where? Where do they come? They go to North America, right? And so that's why, one of the reasons why, uh, by the time of the American Revolution, you know, the United States, what will become the United States, is filled with the descendants of the Pilgrims and the Puritans and the Huguenots and the, and the Presbyterians, right? And so, and, 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 and they have an experience of self-government in resistance to the crown, not one of either rebellion on the one hand or... Um, blind obedience on the other. So this is the experience of this. I now want to talk about some of the theological elements that inclined Reformed Protestantism toward uh, a liberal republicanism. Uh, this is where I'm really going to get moving fast. So, this, so one idea that they had, which comes right out of Jesus' teaching about, you, you remember, you know, render under Caesar, this produces what's called two-kingdoms theology that God creates two kingdoms, that is, his spiritual and a secular kingdom. Both of them are legitimate, but they're not the same. Right? And you can see in this not just the seeds of separation between church and state, that's kind of obvious right? from implication of two kingdoms theology, but more importantly or more broadly, it introduces the idea that the secular kingdom, the civil authorities, the sovereign, is not sovereign over everything. Right? He's sovereign over particular things. The government is entitled to rule with respect to certain things and not others. And this is going to give, give rise to the idea of conscience and intellectual freedom the freedom of thought, the freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera, because the domain of the state, uh, as it it becomes understood that the kingdom not of this world is the the interiority of the mind, what we think and and believe and write and teach and and, uh, uh, and care about. Um, Second really important point is that the Reformed Protestants, even more than our Catholic brethren, emphasize the sovereignty of God. God is above everything, right? Um, The medieval uh, political theory, of course, recognized that God is at the top of the pyramid, but the great chain of being was more their idea. There, There were a lot of authorities, right? But for the Reformed Protestants, real emphasis upon the singularity of God, right? And and what's the political, if you really believe that God is sovereign, what's the political implication of that? Who isn't sovereign? The king isn't sovereign. Right? And in fact, no ruler on earth is sovereign in the sense of having a right to control everything. 
right? And so I, I, I have wrote down a little quote here. In 1776, you know, the revolution, uh, the people of Ashfield, Massachusetts, which is a very Puritan community in western Massachusetts, uh, farmers, primitive people, right? Not an educated elite, um, but believers, right? And they wrote uh, their own sort of support for independence in, in one sentence. I'll read it to you. <clears throat> we do not want any governor, by the way, this is G-O-V-I-N-E-R, they couldn't spell. Mm-hmm. We, we do not want any governor, but the governor of the universe. And under him, a state's general to consult with the rest of the United States for the good of the whole. So the idea of God being sovereign gives rise to this idea that we're not going to have a whole bunch of earthly authorities. People are going to be free to govern uh, themselves. Now, the next point, and in some ways I think this may be the most important, has to do with the authority of Scripture and especially who can read it. Uh, And this is... Uh, the most important difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. It is, what is the status of the Bible and how do we read it? From a Catholic point of view, um, ordinary people are really not capable of reading and understanding the Bible, and indeed it's dangerous to let them do that. It's, It's vital that everyone read the Bible under the guidance of the teachings of the church. There are a variety of reasons for that. We don't have time to get into it, but that's the bottom. That's why Catholic authorities resisted translating the Bible from Latin into the various vernacular languages like English, because as long as the Bible was only available in Latin, and Latin was only known by people who were well-educated, and the only well-educated people were the Catholic clergy, it was a, an easy way to make sure that the reading of the Bible was always going to be subject to the, uh, to the teaching authority of the church. Well, Luther completely rejected this idea. Right? And so you, 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 I'm sure are familiar with Luther's famous, you know, sola scriptura, sola gratia, etc., um, so sola scriptura means Bible alone. The teaching authority of the church is not an authority. Right? It's the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, it's not there. We don't care if church councils in you know, 1323 declared the you know, immaculate conception of Mary or whatever it happens to be. That If it's not in the Bible, we, and, and, and they also believed in something that they called the priesthood of all believers, This follows from the authority of the Bible, but the priesthood of all believers is that every individual, every person, women as well as men, slaves as well as slaveholders, everyone has not just the ability but the duty to uh, pick up the Bible and read it for themselves. If they read it according to how somebody else is telling them to read it, then they are not obeying the authority of the Bible. They're obeying the authority of the person who's instructing them. So this idea 
of sola scriptura leads to this idea that every individual person has to have the ability to uh, read and understand the Bible uh, uh, for themselves. Uh, William Tyndale was one of the very earliest, possibly the earliest translator of the Bible into, uh, uh, into English. And, of course, he was martyred for, uh, for doing this. And he, I have a little quote from William Tyndale that I, you'll, I hope you find as amusing as I do. He's, having a dis, he's disputing with you know, one of the great intellectual leaders of the church about whether the Bible should be translated. And he says, and I quote, if God spare my life, because he's under threat of execution, right? If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow. You know, this is a common farm boy, right? A boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. <laughs> that is so impudent, right? <laughs> but note what this does. This is possibly the most subversive thing that has ever happened in intellectual history because this is the seed of the idea of equality, right? Uh, because if everyone can read for themselves the book that has basically the answers to life, all the most important things are in it, and if everyone has an ability to read that for themselves, then everyone is profoundly equal in the most important sense. Now, I want to note that the actual you know, Reformed Protestants at the time, it, that, it didn't, all the implications of that did not dawn on them. They were not giving women the right to vote yet. They had not yet turned against slavery. I mean, it, it, the, but the implications of this idea are so profound and so subversive that over the next 150 years, those implications are going to play out in the formation of... Uh, of places like uh, the United States of, of, uh, of liberal republicanism. Um, and related to this is a practical point because if everyone has a duty to God to read the Bible and understand it and follow it for themselves, there's something that has to happen. They need to be able to read. And first of all, there's a technological development here because uh, it's the invention of the Gutenberg's invention of the printing press is absolutely essential for Protestantism to make any sense, right? As long as the only copies of the Bible are these extraordinarily expensive things produced in the scriptoria of the monasteries, there's no way everybody's going to be able to, uh, uh, to, to, to do this, right? It takes uh, the printing press, but then it also takes literacy. And so the uh, Reformed Protestant movement was way ahead of everybody else in bringing about literacy. In uh, 1700, roughly, so we're talking about not quite 100 years before uh, the American Revolution, um, 
the uh, I, 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 I picked this up from a, uh, an intellectual historian uh, at, at Yale named Harry Stout. Um, they, they figured out what literate, they made estimates based upon whatever information they have. I'm not quite sure how they figured this out. But literacy rates, the four jurisdictions in the world with the highest literacy rates at this point in time were New England, Scotland, Holland, and Sweden. What do all four of those places have in common? Right? It isn't that they were rich. They were, in fact, not rich. Massachusetts, New England was still, it was still a subsistence economy. Scotland was the poorest uh, part of uh, Great Britain. Holland was wealthy. Uh, Sweden was sort of in between. But it didn't associate with wealth. It associated with this reformed Protestant insistence on... Uh, being able to read the Bible. The literacy rate of women in Massachusetts at this point in time was higher than the literacy rate for men in England. Right. So literacy. And then, so what does literacy have to do with all of this? You can't have a liberal republic unless the public is able to read. Right? You need, people need to know what's going on. They need to be able to read newspapers. They need to be read, able to read things like the Federalist Papers. There is no way you can be a self-governing people uh, unless the people have access to information about things that are important. And so this indirect effect of uh, the Protestant insistence on the authority of the Bible is to create literate populations for the first time and therefore have the demographic uh, uh, potential for, uh, for Republican uh, government. Um, another point, another idea that was strong in uh, Reformed Protestantism was the uh, doctrine of covenant. Now, <clears throat> covenant begins as a purely theological moves into an ecclesiological and ultimately becomes a political idea. Uh, theological, it has to do with the relationship between God and his people. Uh, that God covenants with his people. You shall be my people and I will be your God, God says. Right? But it is not a relationship of blood it's a relationship of belief and conviction, right? Um, the, the people accept God as their sovereign, right? There are people, people God leaves us free to reject him. Right? That's quite clear even from the first big story in the Bible in the Garden of Eden, right? God leaves us free to reject him, but the corollary of that is that acceptance of God and the formation of this covenant with him is something that people do of consent. Right? Now, ecclesiological, that may, I mean, by that, I, that's just a fancy term for how do we govern the church, for the institution of, of the church itself. Right? And so uh, the Catholic Church believes to this day and teaches that Jesus you know, put, you know, went, went to Peter and said, you know, Peter, uh, you are the rock. On this rock, I will build my church. 
feed my lambs, take the keys. So basically, the Catholic idea is that um, God, that is through Jesus, uh, creates this top-down institution of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is essentially a monarchy, right? a a single-headed, top-down institution. People don't vote. Uh, Pope names the bishops and the cardinals, and then, you know, it's it's just like a medieval kingdom, right, where the king is born into it, and then he has his nobles, and it it builds down. You can see how that form... People tend to uh, believe that authority in the church and authority in other things are parallel. There's maybe no logical reason they have to be. But by and large, when you're accustomed to recognizing a kind of authority in the religious realm, it's very familiar and comfortable and natural to recognize a similar kind of authority in the civil uh, realm uh, as well. well. the Protestant reformers completely broke from this. Now, among the various Protestant churches, even today, we have differences of opinion about where that authority lies. So um, the Episcopal Church is mostly kind of Catholic. That is, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the church by the way, still named by the king or the queen. Queen Elizabeth is the one who named, which actually in practice means the prime minister names the archbishop. But it's still, in theory, top down, and it's aristocratic. You have you know bishops and so forth. So, so that's uh, the Episcopal um, system. Uh, at the other end, our, our Baptist friends are purely congregational. That is... Uh, each individual group of believers governs themselves. They will choose their minister, but their minister has no authority over them. He is the person who does them the service of putting on worship and helping them to understand, helping to teach, and so forth and so on. The authority is in the congregation. Right? Uh, by the way, there's an e- even more extreme than that are people like the Quakers for whom even the congregation doesn't really have authority. It's the inner light and so that has the authority. So there isn't, it's really hyper-individualistic, right? So um, where do Presbyterians stand in this? So Presbyterian form of organization is that the congregation is the basic form of organization Uh, But we're actually not governed by votes of the congregation on everything. We elect a board of elders. So represent, and this is, the the Presbyterians, by the way, didn't just happen on this. They didn't just think what would be a good form of government. It's not like they formed an Elks Club and sort of got appointed a committee to figure out how to govern the club. They believed, looking especially at the book of Acts, the early founders of the Presbyterian Church believed that this is actually an imitation of the way the early church operated and therefore religiously commanded. So they elect, we elect elders. Right? That's representative government. It's the elders who run the church. We elect the elders, 
but the elders govern the church. And, and most churches are a little bit more democratic, but in theory, in theory, uh, if the congregation wants to do one thing and the elders believe that the right thing to do is something else, in theory, the elders are supposed to follow their own conscience and belief about what is right and not what the congregation wants. So this is, in the civil sphere, this is the difference between a democracy and a republic. In a democracy, the people rule directly according to what they want. In a republic, the people elect persons who are of character and ability and knowledge, and then those people are supposed to govern according to their best understanding of the common good. Of course, taking into consideration what people want, but ultimately, uh, it's the good of the public, not the desires of the public which govern in a, a republic. And you can see how uh, re- Presbyterianism, which is older than any republic, uh, establishes this model. So, so we elect our elders, right? The el- and, and the minister, the title of the minister, I, is this still true, John? Do you know? Is, is Jason's formal title teaching elder? Yes. So, yeah, so I thought this was still true. I'm partly going on what I learned as a boy, right, as a, in a Presbyterian church. But, um, so Jason's real title is teaching elder. That's important to reflect upon. The other elders, like John, are called ruling elders. So they are in charge. They have authority. What does Jason do? He teaches us. Teaches us very well. But he does, he's not like a priest who has spiritual authority over us. The people with spiritual authority are the elders, the ruling elders. Right? And then the board of elders then elects representatives to the synod, which is a regional body. I'm probably telling you all, everybody here is a Presbyterian, right? You know all this. But, you know, so you, and then so you have a regional body, which is the synod, and then at the national level, we have a general assembly. Right? Um, what does that look a lot like? Looks an awful lot like the United States, doesn't it? Like the United States Constitution, where we have states and we elect legislatures. And originally, by the way, until uh, until the early 20th century, the state legislatures were the ones who elected the senators rather than popular election. So it's a it's a bottom up representative form of government. Right. And it isn't that the Presbyterian Church borrowed this from the United States Constitution. I, mean, I'm not, I would not go so far as to say it's the other way around, but there's an awful lot of influence. I mean, the, the most important single framer of our Constitution was James Madison. James Madison studied at Princeton, then called the College of New Jersey, which was the Presbyterian college, and he studied directly. He even stayed an extra year uh, to study under the Reverend John Witherspoon, who was the most important Presbyterian intellectual of the founding era, and he stayed an extra year to study um, moral and political philosophy. We don't know what he studied under Witherspoon, but it sure isn't much of a leap of 
imagination to think that when he's framing the Constitution, some of the things he learned from Witherspoon about how God indicates for us to govern ourselves may have, uh, uh, may have been uh, uh, influential. Um, representative, the representative character of, of Presbyterian government and of United States government is not a small thing, right? It is in contrast to sort of unbridled democracy. Imagine if we governed ourselves the way, say, social media does with likes and dislikes and flash mobs and instant judgment and total mess, right? Total mess. And, and, and this was the way the French Revolution got going. Was it was unbridled democracy and it leads to guillotines and mobs and, and, uh, and so forth. Representative democracy, the idea, if, if we were to form a republic, we'd look around and we would elect the person we think has the best judgment. And then that person would meet with other people who've been chosen for their good judgment. And then what do they do? They don't just vote, in theory. Uh, they don't just vote, and they don't just do what we want. They talk among themselves, right? And one of them may be from, from uh, Maryland and another one from Michigan, and they'll share what the circumstances are from where they're from. One of them might be... Uh, one of them might be an engineer and another one a school teacher, and they'll share, they'll share what their experiences are like, right? And so they'll get a sense of the diversity of uh, needs and experience and, they will, and, and ideas, and they will talk and they will deliberate and come up with a real answer. Now, I'm not, of course, claiming that our current political system works in this ideal way, but this is the way it's intended to be. That's why, so it's, it's not democratic, but it's also not monarchical, right? It is still the people ultimately govern. And so this is another thing that I think, com it comes out of the ecclesiology of Reformed Protestantism uh, and, and ultimately out of this idea of, uh, of covenant. Um, oh, there's so many things to talk about. Uh, uh, how about, maybe we should talk about liberty and rights um, as one more element here. So uh, how do we get, the Bible doesn't really talk about rights, does it? Uh, you don't have a right to any, I can't think of any, maybe I'm missing some passage, but I can't think of anything in the Bible that says we have a right to do that or a right to do the other thing. Uh, but we do have some duties, right? And most of all, we have a duty to God, right? And so what happens if your duty to God conflicts with what the government is saying? This is the thing that became so urgent, such an urgent matter of thought and reflection with Saint, the St. Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Right, because the Huguenots, the Protestants of France, were worshiping God in accordance with how they believed he was to be worshiped, and they were being uh, executed for that, murdered for that, punished for that, driven into exile for that. And, um, 
Well, Romans 13 seems to say you're supposed to obey the authorities, but they concluded that duty to God comes first. Right? And, and if duty to God comes first, then there has to be something like what we would now call the free exercise of religion. Right? Which, by the way, is a our founders understood this to be a duty and not, they didn't conceptualize it as some right or privilege that we have. Uh, the definite, in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, the, the free exercise of religion is defined, and it is defined as the duty owed to the creator and the manner of discharging it. Right, so this most precious first right is actually understood as a duty, right? In our civil documents, right? A Virginia Declaration of Rights is not a religious document. It is a civil document, one of, the, one of our most important precursors to, the, uh, to our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And so it's a duty, and this, is the, and this comes straight out of the tradition in which, yes, we're supposed to obey the authorities, but um, duty to God comes first. Well, if free exercise of religion, worship, has to be an exception to the authority of the government, well, there's some other things that are corollaries to that, right? Uh, we have to be able to meet together, right? We have an obligation to God to meet together. Um, that's where the freedom of assembly comes from, right? And our founders, actually the specific example that our founders in the first Congress were talking about on the floor of Congress as they were devising our First Amendment was William Penn's arrest for unlawful assembly for delivering a sermon uh, without a license in London. So his unlaw that unlawful assembly, we are not going to have a government in which the William Penns of the world can be prosecuted for unlawful assembly. We have a right, the right of the people peaceably to assemble uh, is what the First Amendment. So, so we need to be able to meet together. We need to be able to speak. We need to be able to preach. Right? Freedom. Uh, we need to be able to publish. We need to be able to publish the Bible. Some of the earliest controversies about freedom of the press were not about politics, not about sedition. They were about uh, uh, publishing the Bible. That's what the very earliest fights were, were all about, and then about whether to publish uh, tracts that, uh, that the Anglican authorities regarded as heretical. The first extended defense of freedom of speech and press uh, in Europe was written by John Milton, the poet, you know, Paradise Lost, but his Areopagitica is about the freedom of speech and the press. Well, who was John Milton? In addition to being a blind poet, he was an ex a radical Protestant. And, he, and when he's talking about things like um, the, the way truth will prevail in a fair fight, he has this whole ideology of freedom of speech that we still honor today. And... He wasn't talking about politics. This is this is about religion. That's the, the it was religious differences that were uh, that were behind uh, behind this. Uh, how about the freedom to travel? 
it was so important to the uh, to the great awakening in America. Itinerant preachers uh, would go about from town to town spreading the gospel, the right to travel, right, the right to educate, and especially the right to educate your own children. Right, we shouldn't have our. Ch- we should be able to bring up our own children uh, in the faith, and we shouldn't have to put up with whatever it is that the governing authorities want them to learn, right? They may want them to learn that the government is sovereign. Uh, we want them to learn that God is sovereign. Right? So, so um, the, the civil libertarian tradition of the United States actually comes from this idea that duty to God is the exception to um, uh, uh, to the authority of the uh, of the ruler, and note that this is not a conception of freedom of the nature of if it feels good, do it. It's not about self gratification or self glorification. The the root of this is duty to God, and I and even if we want to secularize that a bit, because we'll we'll be speaking to our you know, our friends and neighbors and fellow citizens, and we need to be able to communicate to them. Uh, so what is, what is du- duty to God in a broader sense means, you know, the, the duty to live lives that we should live, right? Righteous lives. Uh, uh, that's what freedom is all about, right? Now, to, in order to have the freedom to do the right, you have to have the freedom to do the wrong too, right? Um, the uh, uh, if you can't do wrong, then doing you know doing right is not free, right? Uh, and so I'm not denying that people have freedoms to do things any of us would regard as quite terrible, right? Uh, but uh, but the purpose of the freedom is not to do wrong. The purpose of the freedom is so that people are able to do their duty uh, to God and. Um, Mary has now pointed to her watch doing her duty to you. Uh, and so I'm going to call it quits with that. 